0: Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Kate Sukul will join us to discuss the art of risk. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, what is risk? And are risk takers born or made? Risk is often t- described in terms of either statistics or impending doom, but in fact, scientists don't really have a particular definition of what really is risk or what can be done to improve our ability to take it. Well, this is the issue that's raised in the new book, The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance, and the author is Ms. Kate Suckel. Ms. Suckel is a noted science author who has degrees from the Carnegie Mellon University and Georgia Institute of Technology. She has written numerous works, including This is Your Brain on Sex, and again, her new book is entitled. Titled The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. And Ms. Sukung, I'm very pleased to welcome you back to the Rock Science Show.
1: Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written, The Art of Risk. And I'm curious, you sort of explore uh, the science of risk here. I'm I'm curious uh, what led you to be interested in this topic.
1: Well, it's actually two things. So my my first book uh, was about the science of love and sex. And so it introduced me to this brain circuit called the mesocortical limbic circuit. And it was funny because uh, one of the researchers that I was talking to about it, you know, it's really implicated in love, in pair bonding, and they said, you know, we always talk about this circuit as a reward circuit, but it really is a risk and reward circuit. You know, it made a lot of sense because what bigger risk in the world is there than, you know, seeking out, finding a partner and then, you know, trying to make them stay. And so I kind of got interested in the in the literature from that way. Um, but then, you know, I sort of hit 40 and had what I was calling a midlife crisis in reverse. People had always sort of called me a risk taker. Um, I had taken a rather unconventional path in my career and it, it kind of worked for me. Um, but all of a sudden, in, instead of uh, embracing midlife with a Corvette and a boy toy, you know, I uh, got myself a nice, reliable station wagon and spent my weekends uh, watching Elliot Stabler on Law & Order SBU reruns. So I kind of wondered, okay, so what is this risk thing? Was it really the secret ingredient to my success such that it was before? And if so, how could I get it back? But how could I get it back without losing my shirt, um, and I'll tell you, when I, when I first started working on this book, I really thought it was kind of going to be this book about superheroes, right? Because all of our, our favorite heroes and uh, novel protagonists and movie stars, they're, they're all risk-takers, right? They put themselves out on the line, and, and they wing, win big because of it. And then as I was looking into the science, I, I also talked to all these real-world risk-takers, and it was amazing to me because they all kept coming back and saying, I'm not really a risk-taker. And you're like, okay, wait a minute, you uh, rescue hostages from drug runners or you uh, jump off of cliffs with nothing but a parachute. And then they'd be like, well, okay, but I'm, I'm not like, you know, I don't take unnecessary risks. And all of a sudden it became clear as, as the science and these stories intersected that we've made risk into this much bigger, uh, you know, thing than it actually is, and it really is sort of a simple decision-making process. It's just that some of us happen to use it more often in situations that involve a little bit more gravity or gunfire.
0: Well, it, it certainly gives light to it, but, I mean, so it brings up the question of what really is a risk-taking situation, or what is risk?
1: You mentioned in the intro that, you know, there wasn't one good ne- definition. The problem is that there's actually probably 15 different definitions, and depending on whether you're talking to an epidemiologist or whether you're talking to a neuroeconomist or a business person, um, they're going to give you a slightly different version. Um, but when you kind of distill it down, risk really is any decision that comes with you know, the potential of an uncertain outcome. And that means that, making a million-dollar business deal that could fall through or just deciding whether or not to have that third cup of coffee in the morning, knowing that most of the time that third cup really gives you the jitters. So we we talk about risk-taking so often as if it's a personality trait, you know. He's a risk-taker. She's a risk-taker. Or we talk about it in terms of real negatives. You know, we we talk about it in terms of of the danger, injury, and death that might be involved. And so it's really interesting to sort of think about it in terms of just this really simple decision making process that involves being, you know, dealing with uncertainty. And I think that's important because our brain... You know, we talk about what the brain does a lot. We say it processes information. It's, you know, it's the seat of of control, thought, feeling. But when you really kind of break it down, you know, the brain's in the prediction business. What it's trying to do is filter through all that information that's out in the world and figure out how to move us forward so that we survive and, and hopefully thrive. And so uncertainty, you know, it has a lot of shortcuts for wanting to deal with risk and uncertainty. And if you sort of understand those shortcuts, you can a lot of times leverage it more to your advantage than your peril, and I think that's pretty cool.
0: We'll never have sort of complete information, so We're always sort of trying to leap to some kind of conclusion based on imperfect information.
1: Right, and the brain loves to try to fill in the blanks. Sometimes it does it based on emotions, your stress level, your past experience. Um, Sometimes it wants to fill in the blanks from different contextual clues out in the environment. A lot of times it's filling in the blanks without you even being aware of it. You have these gut feelings or this intuition about what you should be doing instead. Um, And we want to make it sound all woo-woo and, uh, you know, mystical. But really that's just the brain engaging in some kind of pattern matching process. And so, you know, Daniel Kahneman wrote this fantastic book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And, of course, you know, it really raises the question whether humans are rational beings at all which is probably a discussion for another day. Um, but, you know, the brain really does sort of have a method to this madness. It's, it's trying to, um, you know, manage and mitigate all this risk and uncertainty to move you ahead. Um, and if you sort of understand the way that it does so, um, you're, you're, you won't fall down quite as You're still going to fall down, but hopefully not quite as often. Uh,
0: so presumably, all, all the sort of uh, behaviors that uh, improve our chances of survival, why is it then there's a variation in, in the level of risk that some people are willing to take?
1: Right, so this, this is also goes back to some definition changes because a lot of times in the literature, people use terms like risk-taking, impulsivity, sensation-seeking, they use them interchangeably, but they're they're kind of different. And in fact, scientists, as they're sort of pulling apart the brain with, with neuroimaging work, lesion work, um, they're finding that there are slight differences and there are important differences. Some of us have more self-control than others. Some of us are better at emotionally regulating. Some of us need more sensation in our lives. We need a certain amount of stimulation in order to be interested and to engage. Um, And if you go back to the really old psychological literature, um, Marvin Zuckerman did a lot of work on sensation-seeking in the 60s. And what started, 60s and 70s, and what started this off is he put people in a sensory deprivation chamber. And I know that sounds totally like Michael Jackson, put people in there and he found that a certain percentage of people could not stand to be in the sensory deprivation chamber after just a couple minutes they were banging let me out let me out let me out they couldn't handle it they needed a certain amount of stimulation um, to even sort of get out of bed in the morning and he really wondered why um, and so some of us for for a variety of reasons, some of them genetic, probably some of them environmental and uh, you know things we're familiar with, we do seek out higher stimulation um, environments. We are more interested in driving fast. we're more interested in maybe skydiving or with um, more stressful uh, business you know or or, or jobs. Um, and some of us are, are a little bit more uh, happier to stay in the shadows. Um, and then, of course, you see the same thing with stress. Some people, you know, you can't face them. They are so just calm no matter what the world throws at them. And some people get anxious, you know, when their shoelace comes untied. And of course, that's always gonna be a product of an interaction of genetics and environment. Um, but that means that we're all sort of running these these slightly different algorithms when it comes to risk in our heads. And it means that we're gonna be focusing on slightly different variables when it comes time to vet whether something is a risk worth taking or one left al- better left alone.
0: But so then is it beneficial then as, as a group, as a population then to have these different levels, different uh, capacities for risk?
1: Well, that's an interesting question, because when we go back and, and we look at what the brain was designed to do, I don't know that the brain has necessarily caught up to the current environment. You know, some of these things in terms of stress and stimulation, you can imagine 100 years ago, or, what, you know, when we were foraging for food or trying to avoid uh, predators, these, these things were really, really important. Um, what does stress and anxiety mean in terms of finishing a final paper or, you know, just trying to impress your boss enough at work to, get, to make sure that you get promoted next year? Um, and so I think it's interesting why, how we approach different situations, and it may be that, you know, the, the brain is, is still kind of catching up, still kind of evolving but I think that there's probably benefits to these things so that we are adaptable, so we can learn um, to survive in, in the environment that we find ourselves in. And, of course, so we pass down the right traits to, to our children in the future.
0: <laughs> Indeed. So you mentioned earlier some of the, the science that's uh, gone on in terms of neurobiology at risk. What really is uh, known about that?
1: So it goes back to this mesocortical limbic circuitry. And... Um, you know, so basically you have two regions of the brain talking to each other. And, of course, this is an oversimplification. So for all the brain nerds out there, I apologize because I am not doing your beautiful, beautiful circuit justice. Um, but you have the basal ganglia, sort of the brain's reward and motivation centers. And this is, can be kind of likened to the brain's gas. This is the stuff that wants you to get out in the world and do stuff so you can get food, sex, money, prestige, all the best things in life. But, of course, if we went after all those rewards at the very second that we wanted them, the world would be a pretty inhospitable place. So, luckily, you know, the basal ganglia, these reward centers, are talking to our frontal lobes. Um, And you can kind of think of that as the brain's break center. And it's saying that, okay, rewards are good, um, but if not, no, at least maybe not right now. Sex is great, but maybe not with your boss's wife. chocolate cake is awesome, but you just ate an entire large bag of M&Ms after breakfast. Um, So basically what you see is this intricate kind of dance between these regions that are telling you whether or not to push forward or hold back. And what risk is is really, you know, sort of those blanks. What would be the outcome if you pushed forward for that reward, if you went after that thing that you wanted? What would the cost be? And would it be too great to bear? Um, and so then you have areas like the limbic system, um, the memory centers of the brain, uh, the emotional centers of the brain, all sort of trying to fill in what the the potential outcomes could be.
0: So how do we assess our own level of uh, risk taking or uh, how, do, how do we make the most of risk?
1: A little annoyed with the term mindfulness because I, you know, talk about a woo-woo word. You know, people want to talk about it all the time, but there's such fascinating convergence of evidence in the psychological and the neuroscience communities about sort of self-awareness and self-appraisal and sort of the ability to be able to take a step back and really sort of know the way that you approach different situations and this is some of the basis for things like cognitive behavioral therapy um, you know being able to sort of retrain your brain the way it thinks about negative thoughts or um, getting into certain uh, repetitive habitual negative thought processes or what have you Um, but there's really something about just having an understanding of how you approach the world around you are you more of the fly by the seat of your pants kind of person or are you the person that really needs you know sort of a push to get out there you know, knowing that is important because then you can ask yourself when a decision comes around, you know, and it does seem very risky, okay, wait, am I moving forward too quickly or am I moving forward too slowly? Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for being prepared and experienced. And this was a really fascinating thing to me about so many of the successful risk takers I spoke with in the book. And I spoke to... A neurosurgeon, a two-time World Series of Poker champion, um, Steph Davis, who's a world-renowned base jumper and free solo climber. um, And, you know, again, they all kind of said, well, hey, I'm not a risk taker. But they know their area inside out. So they really do sort of minimize the risk to what you would consider sort of residual risk. And they figure out whether or not that's something they can deal with. But what's funny, um, you know, one of the other people that I spoke with, he actually didn't make the book, but he's a firefighter. And, um, you know, he thinks nothing of, you know, rushing into these burning buildings and saving people. And he was telling me all these great, crazy EMT stories. Apparently the real action is in EMT calls because people are nuts and you never know what you're going to deal with once you walk into somebody's home or into a car accident. Um, But somehow it came up that I had just submitted my taxes. And he was absolutely appalled that I would just do TurboTax and not hire an accountant. All of a sudden, this, you know, gruff, brave, you know, firefighter EMT kind of got this squeak in his voice and was like, I can't believe you don't use an accountant. What happens if you get audited? And I think that's also a great example of how we view risk, right? If we're not familiar, if we don't know things, you know, it becomes much scarier than it has to be. And so we look at him, um, you know, and don't think about the fact that he has a decade of training. We don't think about the fact that he really knows his stuff inside and out. And so when the proverbial stuff hits the fan, he can fall back on that training and basically all the best habits. What we see is, That guy is willing to walk into a burning building or, you know, try to uh, subdue a a guy who, you know, has just taken a bunch of drugs and is bleeding in his front yard. Um, But then he turns it around and thinks, oh, my gosh, you're crazy for doing, you know, your taxes by yourself.
0: So so it really is based on kind of what you find normal. I mean, a a professional daredevil would think nothing of jumping through a flaming hoop, but uh, the average Joe, certainly uh, that's a risky thing to do.
1: Right. I mean, I have all these, you know, fantasies now about what evil can evil would find scary. You know, is it, is it fatherhood? Is it women? Is it, uh, you know, the New York Times Sunday crossword? Um, because that that's really sort of the thing. You know, we, we spend, we get to know something. And in fact, you know, time, study after study is now showing this whopping effect of familiarity on risk. Um, in fact, there was just a study a few weeks ago that talked about risk-taking behaviors as contagious. And while I think contagious is kind of a loaded word, you know, it makes sense if, and you think, a very simple example, I grew up in the Northeast near New York City. And even as, you know, a middle schooler, I took the subway and I thought nothing of it. People in the city in Manhattan think nothing of it. I mean, obviously there's certain trains at certain times you don't take, but you know, it's a safe, reliable form of transportation. When I tell people, now that I live in Texas, that I used to ride the subway that way, they are petrified. They think a Card is basically an invite to get mugged. Yet, you take that same Manhattanite, you know, that one that takes the train all the time, and you put them in a rental car in Minnesota, and then they start to freak out. Because, wait, some of these roads aren't marked. How do you figure out this GPS? You know, it, it just really comes down to what you're familiar with and what you know.
0: Really, in a way, it's it's not so much uh, thinking about the actual act itself, but really our familiarity about it. So the question then is, should be, then, how do we deal with situations that are unfamiliar to us in the most effective way possible?
1: Well, you know, I think some of that comes down to that, that self-awareness and knowing how you, you really deal with loads of uncertainty. Um, I think if you can, and sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, uh, you know, finding, doing your homework, talking to people who have been in that situation, trying to figure out what's best and should come next. Um, that's really helpful. It's being thoughtful and prepared. But, of course, the world uh, doesn't always wait for you to be prepared. Um, You know, just the other week I was in Nashville uh, for, for a bookstore event. I was sitting in my friend Lori's living room, and all of a sudden a van crashed into the side of her house. It's not something you kind of expect while you're sipping wine at 9 p.m., you know, on a uh, Wednesday night. And it smelled like a fire was going to happen. We got the kids out of the house. And I think a lot of it really fell back on just staying calm and figuring out what we needed to do next step by step.
0: Survived that one uh, unscathed. We're glad to hear. <laughs>
1: yes, we did. And now we have some very funny pictures of a, a man hanging out of the side of her house. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think that's the key. Once you understand how stress can really change the way um, that the brain calculates out risk, um, how it really can interfere with decision-making. Once you see how emotion, particularly negative emotions can do that, um, you have enough self-knowledge, I think, to do a little better. Not all, I mean, I'm not gonna say there wasn't screeching involved, there was some screeching, but we managed to get everybody out of the house safely, call the police. you know, we knew what to do, call 911, get things handled.
0: Well, we're already slightly out of time, though, I'm curious, what, what do you think that our understanding of risk really tells us how we can really be better risk-takers?
1: I think when it comes down to it, a big message I hope people take away from the book is that risk-taking really is a decision-making process, a cognitive process, and not a um, personality trait. I think so often we make risk bigger and badder and scarier than it needs to be. We think it's the stuff of superheroes or, you know, drug addicts, um, and we think it doesn't affect us. And so I think that once we sort of understand how the brain tries to deal with uncertainty, how um, it makes decisions under uncertainty, you know, we can sort of figure out where we fit into all this, how we interact with the world sort of at a baseline, and then just kind of move ourselves ahead to do a little bit better. Um, again, you know, mindfulness, it's, it's, it's a loaded word these days. Um, but time and time again, what we see in the science is that people who are able to emotionally regulate, sort of take a step back, put a decision in context of a long-term goal, people who are not impulsive but are rather thoughtful and prepared, they are the successful risk takers, you know, that we applaud from a distance, that we, we, we really want to be able to achieve what they achieve. And... I think it's really important to realize that we see the end result so often. It's either the big, you know, story in the Wall Street Journal about a great business merger, or we see that video of Alex Honnold, um, the free solo climber, you know, just climbing this crazy peaks without ropes. But we don't see all the work that goes into it. We don't see how much practice how much homework, how much preparation they really had until they get there. And I think that really is the key to successful risk-taking is doing the work. And so, you know, basically those pockets of uncertainty become smaller and smaller and much easier to manage.
0: Uh, sort of like the Boy Scott motto, be prepared.
1: Exactly. I, I go with the G.I. Joe, you know, knowing is half the battle. But uh, same differs, I think.
0: <laughs> all right. Fascinating uh, fascinating topic. Fascinating book. Uh, the new book is called The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. And the author, uh, Ms. Kate Sukul. Ms. Sukul, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Thanks for having me. As always, it's a pleasure.
0: And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on rocking.